0: Welcome to Impact, the podcast made to ask the hard questions about forming impactful careers. For those of you joining us for the first time, it was wonderful to have you. And for those who are regulars, it's good to have you back again. It's yet another rainy day here in Oxford, but once again, our spirits are high. I'm Brian O'Callaghan, studying
1: a DPhil or PhD here at Oxford in Renewable Energy Finance. And I'm Rahul, a doctoral student here in Oxford studying Advanced Technologies and Medicine. Today, we're privileged to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Keish, the Warden of Rhodes House and CEO of the Rhodes Trust, which administer the Rhodes Scholarships and several other global fellowship programs. Before becoming Warden in 2018, Dr. Keish was the president of Agnes Scott College and led it to becoming the country's most successful liberal arts college for graduating low-income students, as decided by the U.S. Department of Education. Dr. Kish was the founding director of Duke University's Keenan Institute for Ethics and built a long-standing career as a moral and political philosopher, teaching at several colleges, including Princeton University. She holds a BA in philosophy from Davidson College and received a BPhil and DPhil in philosophy from the University of Oxford. Elizabeth, thanks so much for coming on Impact today.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with the two of you.
0: Well, as Rahul was expounding your list of experiences, it's quite overwhelming. I'd like you maybe just to start off by telling us a little bit about that trajectory and what led to those key career decisions that you made along the way.
2: Sure. So, you know, it's funny. I was definitely not one of those people who had her career mapped out uh, in, in advance. In fact, I I ended up in the academy Uh, A little bit without really intending to, to begin with. I came to Oxford thinking that I would be a human rights activist. Uh, I was quite active with Amnesty International and uh, other organizations. But what I discovered while I was in Oxford was that I I discovered I love to teach. And, you know, I, I really discovered a kind of a vocation or passion for education. So that's why I ended up seeing if I could get a a teaching position that was, you know, the first stage of the of the career. Um, and so I started teaching at, at Princeton University in the politics department and also had some interesting stints at other kinds of institutions along the way. What I discovered then, and so it's really a journey of progressive discovery, I I discovered that I, I, which I should have known already, but that I love organizing things and mobilizing people. And so I uh, had the great good fortune, um, you know, as still a, a junior faculty member of being nominated for this ethics directorship. At Duke University. And I remember vividly the moment when I got the nomination and I thought that is a job I'd love to have when I grow up. Um, but there's no way they're going to hire me. You know, um, there are all sorts of senior people who will be interested and indeed were interested in that role. But I decided because in part because a mentor said to me memorable words, which was don't be an idiot apply. Um, I will forever be grateful to this particular mentor. Um, I I threw my hat in the ring and I was incredibly fortunate to to land that job. And so, you know, that that was a, a chapter pivot that was taking a leap of faith, really recognizing that this could be a job where I combined my love of teaching and the academy and being an active scholar with being in more of a kind of leadership mobilization role. And then after having done that for 10 years, um, it was in some ways maybe a more natural transition, though at the time it didn't feel that way, to throw my head in the ring for a college presidency and to discover that in a way I had been doing sort of a college presidency in miniature in my previous role. I'd learned to do some fundraising. I, was, I had built, helped, helped to build a board. I was working across Duke University trying to make a difference. And so all of that positioned me well for the college presidency. And then finally, in terms of the great good fortune to come to Rhodes, you know, that was a much more sort of intentional decision of feeling like there is an arc to a college presidency. I was there for 12 years, that I'd accomplished things I felt really good about. Um, and that it was time to seek a new challenge.
0: Wow. I I really like that piece of advice. Don't be an idiot. Apply. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's pertinent today to young people who find themselves maybe in similar positions to myself and Rahul, otherwise just studying at university contexts?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it is, I have actually probably said that to uh, <laughs> to students and other mentees, you know, a hundred plus times in, in the years since, you know, it's that the one thing you know for sure is that if you don't apply, you won't get it. And, you know, you're not going to get everything you apply for. I applied for things, you know, at the time that I was on the market where I ultimately had the great good fortune to, to come to Rhodes House. I applied for things where I did not progress. I learned something from every single one of those processes. So you learn from the application process itself. Um, but, you know, you definitely will not get a job you don't apply for.
1: One of the things I want to dig back into that you mentioned is your use of the word vocation. Yes. As opposed to maybe career or mm. job. How do you draw the distinction here? And what do you mean when you say teaching was a vocation or a passion?
2: Great question Rahul and I I guess for me I am passionate about leading a purposeful mission driven life you know I I recognize that I'm fortunate to be in a position to and I have been very fortunate to be in a position to get paid for doing work that I love you know and and that feels like it is connected to something beyond me and my career that it's you know I'm 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 playing a part in work in the world that is in some sense, making the world a better place. So, so I, that really matters to me. Um, but then, you know, there's this beautiful quotation about vocation um, from a, a German theologian, uh, I believe his name is he, he said this beautiful thing about vocation is where the world's great need intersects with your heart's joy. And, and I think that is something that you discover over time, not only what you're good at, but also what gives you joy. You know, and, and I've heard um, John McCall McBain, our, our second century founder, talks about that, that sometimes you're really good at something and it doesn't give you joy. And sometimes something gives you joy, but you're actually not very good at it. And so you need to find what you're good at gives you joy. And if you're committed to being a mission driven person, what also makes a difference in the world.
0: Do you think that um, approach to finding joy aligning with your interests is a trial and error approach or are there practical ways that people might go about trying to figure out where everything aligns?
2: It's very much experimental, I think. I mean, I know that there are all kinds of assessments out there that you can take that tell you, you know, whether you should be a, a scientist or a coach. Or, and I think those things can be quite helpful. Um, and, in fact, I'm interested in maybe introducing some tools like that as part of the Rhodes Scholar experience, potentially. So we're looking at that. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's any substitute for for just trying things out. You know, I used to say to students, do an internship, you may discover that you love this field and this kind of work. You may discover that you absolutely hate it. And in both cases, it is very, very helpful and useful. So for me, it was a little bit trial and error and also becoming clearer in my own mind and heart. You know, sometimes we are so intent on what we think success looks like or what we think other people want for us and from us, that, you know, we have to kind of listen to that, that inner voice of, of what actually, you know, makes me happy.
1: And, you know, you mentioned Miller, and you mentioned these things that have almost tinges of your academic work in philosophy. I'm curious how this work has informed how you've chosen to spend your time.
2: You know, I uh, once wrote a, an essay that the title of which was The College Presidency as Applied Ethics or When the Chickens Come Home to Roost. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I think we always bring our our intellectual and academic passions, you know, to our work. It, it's interesting, my, my, my philosophical interest was in ethics and political theory. It was always focused on the intersection of theory and practice. In my life, in my career, I've been able to... Put that into practice, not always successfully, but you know, but certainly sincerely, uh, to try to build, you know, ethical organizations, to navigate decisions in an ethical and inclusive way, to be a part of other people's development, and to to promote that and to support it. So all of that connects to my interests.
0: Maybe to hone in on one of your past experiences in particular, and this is. Taking lead from this impact-driven um, approach, which you've cited, you spent a number of years at Agnes Scott College, and um, you led a number of transformative initiatives in that role. Maybe tell us about a few of them. Which were you most proud of, and why?
2: Sure, I'd love to. So I was there uh, twelve years, and um, and I, you know the business model for these institutions is very, very tough. And we were a women's liberal arts college. Um, So, you know, you think about what gives you lots of scope for enrollment and revenue growth in the marketplace, Um, being a small liberal arts college that focuses on, you know, women students, it was, it was challenging. And what I'm most proud of, Um, was a process and it took several years. It was with lots of input from trustees, from students, from faculty, and very much a shared journey of really thinking about what would make us stand out in the marketplace. What would make Agnes Scott stand out and make more people pay attention to us, more students want to enroll. And we asked ourselves that question, um, you know, vigorously uh, for a period of time, then we did something very unusual, which is we market tested it. So we market tested eight different ideas, uh, uh, hired a firm that did very rigorous kind of um, uh, simulated decision modeling with uh, applicants, Um, So this is not the usual approach to strategic (laughs) planning in higher education. But so what came back was if we really focused the undergraduate experience at Agnes Scott around global learning and leadership development, and we did that in a universal way, that we would see significant enrollment growth. And so that was then a whole huge process of redesigning the whole curriculum. So just imagine the the thousands of arguments that went into, you know, this actually happening. And then we launched it and um, saw a huge increase in enrollment. I mean, record, record record-breaking classes, uh, growth in the rankings, uh, all sorts of, you know, so it was a very exciting uh, moment. And for me, it was so gratifying, because I felt like we, we had made ourselves a more compelling institution while retaining our soul. And we had done it in a way that, that, Engage the entire community. And uh, so, I, I, you know, it was one of the toughest things I've done in my entire life, um, but also uh, one of the most rewarding.
1: And what a good example of how you can do something that is at once community driven and also rigorous and evidence based. Absolutely. So right now you are the first female warden of Rhodes House in a historically somewhat conservative organization. Can you tell us what stepping into that space has been like for you?
2: Absolutely. You know, one of the things that uh, gave me such joy after my appointment as warden was the outpouring of. Welcome messages and support from from the scholar community globally. You know that, and it was it was alums from the nineteen fifties and nineteen forties, as well as uh, you know people who had just gone down in the last few years and, and current scholars. So, I you know I came in with a really wonderful sense that. The Rhodes Scholar community was excited about this. Um, you know the, the the fact that we had our first woman uh, warden. Of course, that also comes with a certain level of pressure. You know, you're you're the first one, and so you really want to. You always want to do well. Um, but if, but I do feel that I feel that uh, um, that sense of, of responsibility. You know, but it's been wonderful. It's been really wonderful. And I, I guess the other thing is I've come to Oxford at a time when um, with you know great contrast from my own experience of being here in the 1980s, there really is a critical mass of women leaders uh, in the university. I mean, starting with the vice chancellor, but you know heads of house, heads of department. Um, it's I think it's a very exciting time at this. Point to be a woman leader in Oxford. I mean, a lot of those people are the first in their, you know, the, the first ever. So we're still in that generation of the trailblazers. Um, but there's great solidarity uh, amongst that, that group of women leaders. And it's it's been just lovely being back here and uh, feeling very welcomed.
0: Do you maybe have any further advice for other young trailblazers who are looking to follow suit?
2: Sure. You know, I think... One of the pieces is, um, you know, it, it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about don't be an idiot, apply, you know, so to be open to that, to be willing to put yourself forward. Um, I think another piece of advice is to seek out people who can be your network of support. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is really, really important. And then the other piece, you know, I I think, and this is maybe more specifically about being a woman Uh, although in my case also only being the second American uh, warden, as I was coming to Rhodes House, I remember thinking to myself, and in fact some people um, in my friend group sort of teasing me about this, that, you know, Elizabeth, you're going to have to tone yourself down. You know, you are this ridiculously warm and fuzzy person who hugs people all the time, and, you know, maybe that won't be appropriate in this new context. And so... But I discovered that it was okay for me to be sort of authentically myself. Um, you know, I'm the kind of leader who tends to try to bring people into the here's what we're wrestling with. Here's what I'm personally wrestling with. Here's here's you know what I'm trying to accomplish. I, I really try to get people's input and. Um, you know, that may not be people's sense of a traditional leader uh, a leader type or archetype, but I think when you're a trailblazer, you need to find that right balance. You, know, you do need to pay attention to cultural norms and you know, not run roughshod over them. But I also encourage people to just be authentically themselves.
0: I think that uh, concept of authenticity and the worry of losing authenticity as you progress through your career pathway is one which really sits on the minds of many people throughout their course of their career, I'm sure. Yes. Um, And I think perhaps one of the common pitfalls in choosing a future career pathway is putting authenticity aside and trying to mould yourself to that which is existing. Mm. Do you maybe have any other common pitfalls in mind um, that Mm. young people in particular may fall into and could avoid based on your experiences?
2: Yes. I think one piece is, and it, it goes back to what we were saying about being willing to experiment and to trust that you will b- learn through experience sometimes. And this may be a particular pitfall for Rhodes scholars with all their talents and their, you know, their brilliance and often talent in different directions and different areas is not taking that leap of faith, not, not being afraid to commit. You know, this may not be the direction that will define the rest of my career, um, but I'm going to to give it a try and learn as I go. You know, I think that, you know, to have an impact, you have to be willing to take some leaps of faith. You have to be willing to um, do things that may not uh, that that are maybe high risk and high reward. You know, and uh, and so I just encourage people to be willing to take those leaps and and not to overthink, you know, um, is this going to be the right path for me forever? You know, you don't know that nobody knows whether it's going to be the right path.
1: Right. And one of the things we were intending to ask you about actually it was young people wanting to do something meaningful with their careers, being unsure about how exactly to get there. There's uh, some underlying assumption there that you have to know how to get there before you can make a decision.
2: Yes. And the fact is, this is a decision that you will make with imperfect information. Um, and that will be true for the rest of your life. I mean, I have to say that Uh, after I announced at Agnes Scott um, that I was going to uh, step down from that presidency, uh, you know, in a year. And then I had that moment of absolute terror, you know, I am going to be unemployed, you know, so it doesn't go away, you know, that, that, that kind of anxiety, although over time, you can kind of walk back from that, from that anxiety, um, more easily than perhaps, you know, earlier in your, in your career. Um, You actually know more than you think you know, what is it that I like to do? What kind of work, you know, gives me satisfaction and flow and joy? And to recognize that you may be able to pursue that in in different sectors. You know, increasingly I find that scholars end up having careers that span different sectors. So they might be in the academy, they have stints in public service, they work for an NGO – um, they work for a for a, a company um, a for profit company um, you know people use the phrase sometimes tri sector athlete uh, to describe somebody who who over time does work in different sectors and I think even being aware of that is is helpful for people to realize that you know I can try going down a pathway and then uh, it might, you know, I might end up going in a different in a different direction.
0: These are pearls of wisdom, really, and I'm sorry to direct the conversation away from them. But we thought that while we did have you here on the podcast, um, we'd take the opportunity to maybe ask a couple of slightly more controversial questions sure. about uh, the Rhodes program, Rhodes House, and the Rhodes Trust. And uh, I'd like to read a quote from a um, 2009 book, I believe, by Shaper and Shaper in which they say, from 1904 to the present, the program's critics have had two main themes. First, that too many scholars were content with comfortable, safe jobs in academia, in law, and in business. Uh, I'm wondering, does that speak to you? How do you respond to that?
2: What I don't like about that quote is, uh, and I don't know if this is what they intended, but I think that sometimes people believe that there are sectors that are safe, You know, so in other words, becoming an academic is a safe, um, you know, that's a that's a comfortable route. And with that, I really fundamentally disagree um, uh, about all all three of those examples, you know, business, law, um, academe. Um, You know, we do want Rhodes Scholars to be curiosity-driven to be thinking about how they can make a difference, but there are no, to my mind, no limitations on the sector in which you can do that, you know, so so it's this, so I guess that's my disagreement, it's, 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 um, there are no comfortable sectors, you can be a, a transformative, innovative person in the classroom, you know, in the academy, in law, um, and in business, and, and, as I think about the many, many Rhodes Scholars uh, over the generations that I've uh, that I've come to to know, um, what I see is patterns of people. You know, in some cases, they may be doing their most innovative and interesting and impactful work beyond their day jobs. You know, so we have a lot of people who do really interesting work in their um, philanthropic or extracurricular or civic activities, Uh, but also people over time doing, uh, whether it's within their their chosen field or, you know, as I was mentioning before, by pivoting to a different sector, but building on their experience from the first, you know, doing really creative works.
0: Going back to Shaper and Shaper's book again, and corrections, 2010, not 2009, my bad. And the second part of their quote, which I haven't read yet, was that too few Rhodes scholars have had careers in government or other fields where public service was the number one goal. What would you say to the assertion that careers in government are the best way to serve?
2: Yes, well, you know, uh, Cecil Rhodes himself, in the will, talked about, um, he hoped that his scholars would um i will i hope I get the language right I may not be getting it right exactly, but w- could uh, will value the performance of public duties as their highest aim so it is there you know in the in the founding of the scholarship, there is this desire to develop leaders who will perform public duties now there's you know I think there are many ways to perform public duties. Government is one way, um, and a very important one, obviously. You know, as I go around the world, uh, it is it is really interesting to see. I mean, I was just on the road, and, you know, we just had a Rhodes Scholar elected to the Delhi City Council in India. We I met with people who were, you know, in the president's office in South Africa who are— uh, with the City of Cape Town government, um, we obviously had two Rhodes Scholars running for the U.S. presidential race uh, this this time around. We have the, you know, a, a cabinet minister in Canada. I mean, there are many examples. I am proud of the scholars who who go into public service in that way. But there are so many ways of doing public service, you know. So we have scholars who are journalists. We have trailblazing scientists. We have Educators, which is, I think, an incredibly important form of public service. I was just on email with a uh, a scholar who was excited to tell me that her teacher training program is now expanding to six U.S. states. Now, if that isn't public service, you know, um, so I I think. I think it's great for us to celebrate the many ways in which um, uh, Rhodes Scholars are of service to their communities, to their country, to the larger world. And I think it's very important for us to have that more capacious understanding of what, what public service means.
1: And with so many Rhodes Scholars doing such exciting things, what are you most excited about bringing to the Rhodes Trust in the coming years?
2: Well, there are so many things I'm excited about with the Rhodes Trust and kind of our strategy and the things that we are pursuing. But I guess if I if I had to pick one, it is and it's it's very relevant to the theme of this podcast. You know, our strategic plan for our 125th anniversary, the the sort of the subtitle for it is a, a lifelong fellowship for global impact. And. I am very excited about that goal. You know, I feel like we have 117 years of scholars making a difference in the world, and we're very proud of that. Uh, but there's so much that we can do, and it began before my wardenship. Uh, it's really building on great work by by some of my predecessors. But how do we make the trust a more intentional catalyst for that connectivity among scholars that helps them amplify their impact you know so whether that's through our our convenings through mentorship through digital collaboration through uh you know i I hope over time we'll be in a position to to provide some resources for people for scholars who want to work together to do good things in the world. You know, so just to give you an example and it goes back to your previous question about uh, public service. You know, we have a really interesting number of scholars who are involved in city government, right? And they're in different parts of the world. You know, one of those those little fantasy ideas, you know, is like if we could get them together And to think about, you know, the cities of the 21st century and how do people who are in Delhi city government and Birmingham, Alabama city government and Hartford, Connecticut and Cape Town, South Africa, you know, how could they learn from each other, support each other and amplify one another's impact? You know, I think that's a a new kind of role for the trust is to be in that catalytic role of uh, fostering that lifelong fellowship. And I'm, I'm very excited about that.
0: Well, exciting times ahead. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on the show here today and for really insightful and thought-provoking comments. To our listeners, thank you for joining us once again. I'm Brian O'Callaghan here with
2: Rahul Arora, and this is Impact.